signatures detected. Shield up. Signatures detected. Context Southfleet Command. What's happening? Co- context Southfleet Command. Delay that order. Context Southfleet Command. This is the captain. Context Southfleet Command. Get out of my chair. 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 We have engaged the Klingons. 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 Welcome to the greatest discovery. It's a new Star Trek podcast from the makers of the greatest generation. I'm Adam Pranica. I'm Ben Harrison. Uh, very hard to uh, to make bits about Star Trek while I'm watching my country burn to the ground. <laughs> I think this may be the best time to do those bits. I know, like the I, I think it was the the editing process easier to distract yourself from than the mm-hmm. recording process. But I have I, man, I've been looking forward to this all day. Something fun to do. Oh, good. Yeah, this is going to be great, right? This, I mean, we don't often promise this. This is going to be a great episode. (laughs) Shows with uh, self-confidence come out and they say, this is a great show, a lot to look forward to. We got this, this, and this. We never set up what we're going to do. And uh, we never never make promises that we don't feel we can keep. This is a technology that all great hosts deploy, right? Like the hosts of your late night show, the hosts of your Saturday night lives, the hosts of anything is always, always, always. The hosts of YouTube channels do this. You're going to love what's coming up next. Yeah, I'm going to teach you how to replace the the uh, the runner in a drawer that helps it slide open. This is the Dan Savage thing about tell them what you're going to do, tell them what you're doing, tell them what you did. This is <laughs> this is that except for hosting a show. We're telling you what we're about to do to you. We're 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 talking dirty to you about Star Trek. <laughs> and in a moment, we're going to tell you what we're doing. We did it, Adam. This is the end of the 23-week run. Uh, we've got we've got more show after this. We've. I like saying this now because if we said it at the end, people wouldn't hear it. They'd have yeah, turned off the right. show by then. I don't want to tip our hand because I don't. You know. That's how you lose. Things change. Yeah, you got to know when to hold them, know when to fold them. Run, boy. Make them nice, cause ain't no bread now. I learned. All of these things, and yet I'm still terrible at gambling. <laughs> you really are. You're one of the worst. <laughs> That's why I don't do it. <laughs> I lose the money, and then I feel really bad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you're supposed to at least do one of those things the opposite yeah. way. <laughs> I think also the other thing is that I don't feel good if I win money. Oh, that's a crucial part of it. You got to enjoy the winning, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but that is a very specific and known quality about you and to a similar extent me. Uh, that's the challenge of our lives, really. Enjoy it yeah. when it's good. Appreciate it when it's good. Because boy, oh boy, when it turns. <laughs> <laughs> it's dark out there. It turns rancid. Yeah. Um well, I don't wanna I don't wanna dilly dally any longer, Adam. Do you wanna get into the episode? We got a big show for you tonight. Uh <laughs> Coldplay is here. So uh stick around and we'll be right back with Star Trek Discovery season three, episode thirteen. That hope is you part two. Finally, Ben, Culber has seen a Gormagander. And registered its <laughs> <Yeah>. presence. <laughs> registered its massive flying presence. Good for him. Yeah, and this is a baby Gormagander to hear the uh, the voiceover tell it. 
uh, we we skipped over the scene where there's a pile of gourmigander shit on the ground that <laughs> <laughs> Ian Malcolm is yeah. uh, recoiling at. Dino dropping, dropping. What sucks about gourmigander shit is that it falls from height, so it is definitely not a pile once it hits the ground. It is a. Uh, yeah. It is a spray. I think the the point of this moment is to show how badly the sim is breaking down. The uh, the hologram on uh, on the Kiev is starting to like misbehave, starting to glitch more so than even it was glitching before when it was just a hundred and twenty year old computer that was a little bit busted. Are we to understand that it's? growing degradation has to do I mean I'm understanding it as it's related to everything uh, the earthquakes the radiation uh, Sukal's constant upsetness over things yeah. but is there one that is really making it degrade is it mostly the age and then everything else is contributing to it so what I understood was that the the little the baby burn mm-hmm. uh, a couple episodes ago when he screamed and we saw the sphere of pulse Mm -hmm. come out of the nebula and hit the other ships kind of accelerated the process of the ship falling apart yeah not all baby burns are cute yeah and like culber kind of puts together the the secret of the burn in this episode and having watched it twice the second time through I was so much more scared anytime they were interacting with Sukol. Like yeah. I, I was like, I already know what happens in this episode, but every interaction with him feels like it could end in like galaxy-wide catastrophe. He's a person covered with tripwires, like emotional tripwires, and you just don't totally. know what's gonna clip one. It's so intense that the thing that they have to do is get him to face his fear like right the, the solution to their problem is get guy covered in emotional tripwires to uh like experience very scary emotions yeah and like there's no avoiding this challenge like it's so weird you're so right in your description of how much more scary the threat is the second time through because when you sit with Saru and Sukal is the one nursing those wounds, you're like, well, that's nice. And also don't say the wrong thing, Saru. <laughs> <laughs> like we, I know we got to dress those wounds, but uh, keep your mouth shut, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Sukal is kind of like playing along because he still believes that human Saru is a, is a hollow, but he, you know, gives him some kelp to make his, radiation burns feel better and uh that's really sweet i mean like he's got a good heart he's got he's got a very simple mind but he uh he seems like a caring person we didn't talk a lot about sakal's character in the previous episode like i would say in depth i think because he's on screen a lot less than he is in this episode Uh, i don't know if you did any research about him I looked up the actor that plays him. I feel like I've seen him in stuff. If I were to ask you how old you think he is, what would your answer be? He's like he's like in his late 40s, early 50s, I feel like. 70 years old. Wow. I am shocked by that fact. I must have seen like an IMDb photo that was like his headshot when he was in the middle of his career. Hey, Bill Irwin, looking great. Yeah. Age goals. 
<laughs> he, he's great in this episode. That's that's my main point here. I agree. Like, I think that it's easy to imagine a show with less care being given, making a character like this kind of the butt of a joke or something like that. And I never get a whiff of that with Sukal. Like, I think that the, you know, emotional stuntedness of having grown up around computer simulations only feels really authentic and not like a a weird dunk somehow. You're so right about that because an actor needs to figure out the line and on one side of the line, it's Sukal and on the other side of the line, it's Ben Stiller doing Simple Jack, you know? Right. And you want... And- on Star Trek and on, really on any modern show made in the last 20 years, like you have to be on the Sakal side of it and not the Simple Jack side. I would even argue that Simple Jack as a joke about that kind of thing was too far. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. The hollows don't give good instructions. So Saru and Culber are like talking about like, hey, we got to turn off this simulation and get the fuck out of here. Like, can, like... Have you been able to like get through to this guy and convince him to to teach you how to do it? And Saru's like, no, no dice just yet. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is when Adira shows up. They have been uh, transmogrified by the simulation to appear as a Zahian. And uh, this caught me off guard the first time I saw them because... They come from around a corner, kind of facing away from the camera, and mm-hmm. the Zahian face markings yeah. read as radiation burns to me initially. And I was like, damn, Adira is really susceptible to this. Oh, no. What did Adira put in their mouth? <laughs> <laughs> like like uh, Adira accidentally chomps on it like a, like a piece of hard candy. <laughs> You're not supposed to have that many. <laughs> I, uh, I took something else from this scene, which was like, how discouraging it's got to be to be a cosplayer and see how easy it is for someone who's on the show to just be any of the aliens that the show chooses them to be you know <laughs> like this yeah. is ultimate cosplay like totally. adira as a Hian and gray as pretty rad looking at the time i didn't know if they were romulan or vulcan but like i think i read later that gray is a blue-haired vulcan oh cool i gotta believe like when you're a cosplayer you you try to choose the thing that like that you would play best right you would cosplay to your strengths exactly and i feel like uh gray really hits the home run with yeah. with the vulcan that's a dinger right yeah. there um and uh surprisingly gray is visible to saru and culber which means there's some there's some phenomenon that the hologram system is picking up on that is choosing to make corporeal a, a representation of gray. And I, uh, I, I was so curious about this. I wanted a scene where gray gets to look in the mirror and yeah. there were, there are a lot of things like that in this episode where I was like, I have questions, <laughs> but, uh, this was one moment where I thought some like character stuff could have been, uh, really good. And I think it's cool because it leaves open the possibility that Gray is not going to be a ghost person in season four if they bring that character back. There's something about this that I think has been done in some other movie or TV show, but I'm glad that I'm glad that this series of episodes avoided that 
trope of the simulation choosing what you are based on something it knows about you and secretly wants like right like for your alien choice to be somehow embarrassing to you because that's <laughs> because there's something about the alien that you truly desire to be for yourself i think would be an interesting twist on it like yeah, why yeah. is saru human what about him <laughs> is what about that is something that this hollow program picked up on and projected onto him rather totally. than chance, which I, I believe that's the truth of the matter is like it's just a uh, spin of the wheel and, and this is what you get. Back at the, in the Federation donut bubble, uh, the disco is now being shot at by other Federation ships and it's just kind of like flying around willy nilly inside there while the Viridian shoots at the exterior of the shields trying to like punch a hole so that they can get out. How is 20 ships to one even a contest in here? They're really making you suspend the disbelief of strategically how impossible it would be for the disco to survive even 10 seconds. Right. Yeah, like there there are mentions made of like, oh, like this, the shields on this thing have only five minutes left or whatever. It's like five minutes, like sh shoot everything at them. It's interesting. Shoot how, like, her! The, the tension isn't, are we going to destroy the discovery? The tension is between Admiral best looking guy at your high school reunion and Kovich. <laughs> who is squawking in his ear about how bad it looks, like how bad of a look it is to shoot at Discovery inside the base. Yeah. I like the justification, though, right? Like if Osira gets control of that ship and can use it for its utility, yeah, we don't have a Federation anymore. It's liter This is literally an existential threat to the continued existence of the Federation. And that's math that pencils out for me. If you were expecting Kovich the Kovic and Admiral relationship to continue uh, braiding itself through this episode, you'd be wrong because I think this is, a, this might be his last scene. I think that's the last time we see Kovic. There's a lot of like characters that are recurring characters that I feel like almost get cameos in this episode. What about the message it sends? They, they also uh, get some, some time with uh, Paul Stamets here in HQ who is still riding for, like, fuck everything, let's go back to the nebula, and just feels feels like the table gets flipped right in his face when he runs up to the Admiral to, to make this case, and the Admiral's like, nope, Michael Burnham was correct. You, you have to go in, like, into the, like, undisclosed location with the civilians. This is not a good look for Stamets. Again, every time they give him a scene where... He bursts into a room where business people are doing business shit. And like people are dealing with a crisis. Right. With with his personal emotional crisis to weigh against it. I mean, obviously, we we love him and we want to see him OK, but it's unprofessional and a bad look. Yeah. This is crying at work, damn it. Like, yeah, people are going to treat you differently after this. An ignominious uh end to a season for this character that didn't get a great season right there were many things i liked about him this season but i think overall it it felt like he was really misused but you know what stamets being a potted plant in this season hmm. maybe 
restorative justice for all the female characters that have been potted plants in previous iterations of Star Trek. Wow. You, you're suggesting that this is intentional? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the writers were like, fuck that guy, okay? <laughs> uh, Osira has slapped Michael Burnham once uh, she reaches the bridge and uh, alerts her that that hissing sound you've heard uh, elsewhere on the ship is the sound of the oxygen being let out very slowly for some reason. This is like this is like bad guy in a James Bond plan. We're gonna we're gonna kill as slow as possible. I have a gun in my room. You give me five seconds, I'll get it. She took notes from Michael Burnham, alien queening mm-hmm. some of her regulators last episode, uh, and it was like, but it wasn't cruel enough. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. So she's letting the air out of every deck below deck five uh, as slowly as possible so that the uh, the insurgent bridge crew uh, will be very conscious of the uh, fact that they're going to die. And this is when uh, it all seems like it's lost. Um, but Michael Burnham gets on FaceTime with Admiral Erectile Dysfunction Medication Spokesmodel. Right. And says, basically, allow me to single-handedly fix this problem. I'm Michael Burnham. <laughs> she turns to camera. It's great. Like, Michael Burnham is, is fighting on two fronts, right? She's trying to manipulate Osira and Admiral September 2014 cover model of Yachting Life magazine. <laughs> and it works. It's it's an interesting standoff because Navarre has shown up. They have answered the call. Um, we don't get to see Michael Burnham's mom in this episode, but uh, but sh- she's the one that answered the call. And so now there's a fleet outside that could present a real hazard to Osiris' ability to escape. But what what the admiral wants is to destroy the ship. And Michael Burnham is saying like, no, there's another way. Like trust me with this thing that you just said is an existential threat to the Federation. If it falls into the wrong hands, like we're going to figure this out. And that is trust that he extends to her. This is a moment like so many moments where Michael Burnham, like the camera slowly pushes in on Michael Burnham and she's making her case to someone who has the power to even, to either grant her permission to do a thing that seems sketchy or not. Yeah. And she gets her way. I mean, he's, he's probably just thinking like, well, she's going to mutiny if I don't say yes. So <laughs> I might as well. Yeah, I get that. But the downside to this scene is us not believing it. Like, like that moment straining credulity between yeah. them. Did you feel that? Because I, I thought about that. Like, I don't know. I don't quite know why this worked for me, but it did. Why doesn't Disco just escape without the need for this? I don't think you need this moment is what I'm saying. And the downside of the emotional coin flip or the, uh, or the credulity coin flip is that it kneecaps uh, the feeling. And by just by just removing it, I think... You avoid that possibility. Like part of constructing bad guys is that you need to make them smart and powerful enough to credibly present a threat, but not so powerful that 
they win. Like right. the good guys need to win. But this is a moment that does not allow the escape to be due to a quality bad guy. It's a right. inside person manipulating uh, the 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 more powerful force to allow this to happen. Osira doesn't execute some brilliant tactical maneuver. Yeah, and I think this is a show that does that really frequently. Like, rather than build up the threat into something as terrifying as it could be, uh, Michael Burnham is always proximate to the problem enough that I want to feel more danger, I think is what I'm saying. And a scene like this doesn't quite allow that to bloom. Yeah, you're right. There are other ways to approach uh, the inciting incident of this episode, but um, this is the way they went. So what we've basically got is Disco followed by the Viridian, followed by the Voyager and a fleet from Navarre, like flying at warp speed somewhere. And the uh, and the antics ensue. Back on the nightmare planet, Saru is like, want to eat some Kaminar haggis with me? <laughs> <laughs> and Sukal's like, uh, man, I haven't enjoyed Kaminar Haggis in ages. And also, aren't you human? I thought you'd hate this stuff. <laughs> it's, a, it's a piece of seaweed inside another piece of seaweed inside a larger stinky piece of seaweed <laughs> intestine. They call it the aristocrats. <laughs> Sukal is like, wow, all the cooking shows that, the, that were left, left over on the computer aren't good enough to like really teach you how to make it. So I'm really excited about this. They're more like competition reality cooking shows than the kind of show that actually like walks you through a recipe step by step. It's weird as hell when the show full stops and then pivots into that. And so like <laughs> Saru and Sukal like step up to be judged and Adira and Culber are like, Look, I really like the effort, Sukal, but you clearly have never eaten this meal before on your home world. And yeah. uh, while I appreciate what you were trying to do here, the crumb is just, <laughs> it's just unstructured and dry. Yeah, it's its over overcooked on the outside and undercooked on the inside. <laughs> uh, a, real, a real amateur effort, a real shame. I thought you were going to go further in this competition, but here we are. The Wraith Judge is the hardest judge, and the Wraith Judge is actually the one who has the expertise on this particular dish. And the Wraith Judge <laughs> is like, look, I've been eating this forever. And uh, it's fucking trash. I'm made of this. <laughs> I should be able to eat this, but it's gross. The Wraith Judge is the pizza the hut of <laughs> of this meal. <laughs> this is this is the scene at its conclusion where Saru kind of comes out to Sukal as being from Kaminar. And that's a significant right. moment because he does it uh, he does it carefully. He doesn't want to spook the uh, Kaminar horse. <laughs> right. He doesn't want uh, doesn't want him running out of the barn. But yeah, things are not always as they appear. It seems like this is something that Sukal can just wrap his head around. That he is talking to another sentience. It's not a simulation standing in front of him. You were walking around here, kind of swishing your hands behind your back in a way that seemed familiar. <laughs> yeah. I wonder how much Doug Jones thought about the way he would move as a human versus how he moves as a as a Kelpian. 
I could really appreciate Doug Jones in this episode acting as Saru without makeup here. Yeah. You get a lot of scenes with him to just sit with him and have him do Saru. And it made me think about him rehearsing for scenes, you know, doing yeah. table reads and stuff and how that's got to feel and look when when you're running lines. It's not something you get to see as a as a civilian. And, and it's an interesting exercise in watching it happen on an actual show. Right. On the disco in Six Bay, there's this argument about dosing book. And uh, Osiris there, Zara's there, Dr. Aurelio's there. Dr. Aurelio's like, look, uh, we're, we're giving him uh, the half gummies and uh, they, aren't, <laughs> they aren't really doing much. And I'm really reluctant to like uh, turn on the sound system and like, the the strobe lights and like really hammer him with the uh, with the the crown of interrogation, like I'm yeah. I'm more of a chill partier than this. And Zara's like, the crown of torture must be put upon his head. There's some infighting among them. He's like, listen, guys, I'm an invigilator. I'm all about pleasure, and I don't <laughs> think I can stand here and watch you make this man feel bad. I love that, uh, God, who says this line? Someone turns to Michael Burnham, who's also there, and is like, you've never, you're never going to see agony like this anywhere. And, uh, and like slaps the hood of, of the, uh, of the ring that they put around book. And, and, uh, Michael Burnham like puts up a finger and is like, actually, <laughs> you don't know where I've been. <laughs> um, the torture of book. Uh, was very upsetting to watch for a show that has shown us a lot of torture. Yeah. This felt like uniquely harsh and upsetting. I wonder if Sonequa Martin-Green sat down David Ayala and was like, look, you've been cast on Star Trek Discovery. Congratulations. <laughs> They're going to ask you eventually to scream as loud as you can because you're in great pain. <laughs> Here is how I do it. Yeah. Because there's no one better than Sonequa Martin-Green at doing this. And to his credit, David Ayala totally kills this scene. Like, it's amazing. And and it's part of what makes it feel so traumatic to watch is because wherever this is coming from in him feels real and scary. Yeah. Like, there is a camera and special effects component to it, but the performance is what sells it. Yeah. So in the simulation, Saru is kind of making more and more breakthroughs with Sukal and talking to him about uh, the kelp monster and what it represents that Sukal needs to kind of face his fears to, uh, to get them out of here. He also explains the burn and like, this is why the Federation didn't rescue you. Like you're frustration with not ever having been rescued is is fair and uh, and reasonable but there is like a good explanation um, but it, this is all kind of dancing around the topic of the fact that the outside world like the world outside the simulation specifically is the hot button for Sakal. it's the thing he fears it's the thing through the scary doors right this is a lot of information for him to process all at one time I was uh I mean, the same tension from before about how how gently you treat him was present here, you know? Yeah. 
the tension is like a very different kind than the torture tension that we're cross-cutting with, but feels like just as intense somehow. Yeah. It's interesting, like, uh, like on the planet, you don't want to call to scream, but when we cut back to discovery, you cut into book screaming and he finally reaches a register that is so loud and powerful that it radiates its own wave off the ship. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, triggers another burn and and destroys the discovery in the process. Did you like the season, Adam? <laughs> they actually stop hammering Book for a second. They're like, uh, this is such a Rambo First Blood Part 2 moment. Did you get that? Zara's like, uh, wow, we're really doling it out here. Like, like he's he's chained to the mattress frame. We've really dialed up the electricity. Uh, yeah, yeah. Haven't, haven't seen many stronger than he, and yet. <laughs> and so Michael Burnham is like, okay, let me talk to him. I'll get the, like, the secret they want from him is coordinates of the, of the dilithium as big as the Ritz. And she's like, I'll... I'll get it out of him. He'll tell me you don't need to keep torturing him. And they do that thing where they're like, we don't need to keep torturing him. Okay, we'll turn it down. Just give me one second. We'll turn down the torture in five, four. <laughs> it's like, come on, just turn it off. Cut it. <laughs> the guy does the five countdown. And then when he gets to three, he goes silent for the. Uh... <laughs> Guys, you're naughty. Michael Burnham approaches the bio bed and punches a button that initiates a a quarantine field, a field that we could really used in my house uh, last week. No kidding. I'm reading about false negatives in L.A., Ben. How does that make you feel? Not good. Yeah. Well, it's a good thing we're not hanging out in person. <laughs> I can finally say that out loud after a number of years. My heart breaks, Adam, but uh, <laughs> but the truth is finally out. It's interesting, like the the talk of quarantine and all the like shortness of breath stuff in this episode was like thought up, shot yeah. before the pandemic, but it felt very much like it was talking about the now. My beloved dog has been going through uh, an illness that is that has to do with uh, his respiratory system and these these scenes of the bridge crew were so much more affecting to me i think than they would be otherwise yeah because michael burnham and book escape and then we cut to the bridge crew who are you know armed and you know making their way through hallways and i think i guess they're in engineering at this point trying to trying to hack their way into stuff but there's just no way that they're going to like take back command functions before they run out of air. So Tilly is like, okay, well, I guess what this means is we have to like attempt to retake the bridge. And even though that's not even possible, given how overwhelmed in numbers we are, fighting to our last breath is literally the only choice we have. I love how this scene starts, which is basically like Owo turning the camera, dropping a little bit of backstory and then shrugging her shoulders like, I guess I'm going to be the one to die at the end of this one. I was like, no, I said, no, whoa. Yeah. The more she started talking, the more I was like, oh, no, they're killing her. Because uh, anytime you give a random bridge crew person on this show dialogue, it's not a positive outcome that happens to them. (laughs) 
like one of the things she says is that she's capable of holding her breath for 10 minutes. Yeah. Holy mackerel. I love how Bryce and Reese look at her and they're like, well, then why are you breathing all our oxygen right now? <laughs> Knock it off. <laughs> we could last 20% longer. They would have told that to Owell if they weren't also afraid that if they had, uh, their characters would be at risk of dying at the end of the ep. What is this respirator that they found? And why is there only one? Like, why aren't there EVA suits? Boy, the EV suit question is right there. And I don't know. I wish there had been a line of dialogue. Yeah. Like, oh, like they shut off the replicators. We can't even make an EVA suit. Like all of the external ports are above deck five, so we can't, you know, something. That weird clear egg that Michael Burnham put Stamets in, like was there air in that? (laughs) Let's get some eggs and run around. Yeah. (laughs) They've made their peace with dying when Michael Burnham gets over the radio with some code for Tilly. And this is just a memory of a particularly shitty birthday that Tilly had one year. It's slightly better uh, speaking in code than Star Trek Six, I would say. Yeah. <laughs> By a little bit. Just slightly. Uh, it is a suicide mission code. Like, yeah. Not the code you hope for, but uh, it's the code that they get. <laughs> and, uh, and the suicide mission is go set an explosion in one of the nacelles so that the ship drops out of warp. And I guess Michael Burnham and Book will handle the computer core side of the thing. Right. I thought initially the suggestion was that only Owo would die. But what we know to be true is that uh, death comes for them all in a plan like this. So uh, back on the planet with Sukal, it's clear that uh, he has not been into doing chores during his time on the planet because everything could really use some dusting. Do you think that if he didn't want to do chores, he would throw a tantrum and then like you'd be in danger of another burn? Is that why Is that why every, nothing is picked up around him? Yeah, he's sort of the Hulk, but for the burn, like you really got to be worried about pissing him off. If you were Sukal's mom and you made a program meant to take care of him, why wouldn't you be a part of that program? It's a good question. Um, maybe because it's like super morbid <laughs> to make a fake hologram of yourself to raise your child. Well, I guess we find out later that like he witnesses her death, but maybe, I don't know, like he was a little kid at the time. Maybe you you make hollow mom. Mm. Yeah. Hollow mom. I could use one of those right now. Kaminar was never through that door that Sukal gestured to last episode in this one. The the idea that it ever was is starting to fade away to him. And uh, yeah. the smoke monster is there to help facilitate that realization. It's really pushing him toward this face your fears moment and uh, starting to feel like that's an inevitability. Meanwhile, Culber, Adira, and Gray are looking at a hole in the edge of the hollow where uh, Culber has like attempted to go out this hole to see what's going on on the ship, but it's even more radioactive outside the simulation than it is inside. So he uh, he couldn't do it. And this is uh, this is Gray's moment to shine. 
Culber holds up his own Mr. Deeds hand and was like, I, I stuck this out that hole. <laughs> <laughs> now look at it. I'm hideous. <laughs> I was really hoping we'd work some Mr. Deeds into this episode. Yeah, I got your back. I wondered though, like, does hollow gray break down outside this? And the implications is sort of that hollow gray would break down because gray can't quite leave the like cloud of blue particles when he goes through. This episode can't decide how dangerous it is out there because by the time we do get outside the hollow onto the ship, no one suffers the way that Culber is describing. Yeah. Yeah, I wondered if that was like because it was a different part of the ship and therefore less radioactive or or if it was just that they get rescued fast enough. It's a really nifty idea that Culber is presenting here about like Sukal having been born on this planet. Uh, Sukal's genes are like attached to the dilithium there in this special way. Like, yeah. He uses the term polyploid to describe it. Yeah. Sounds credible to me. I think the closest analog to how we would understand it now is like there so many births are happening in like in in tubs and stuff. Yeah. It's why if you're a child of a tub birth, uh, you never want to go into hot tubs anymore. Everyone knows <laughs> yeah. that about. Yeah, it ruins hot tubs kids. for you. Yeah. We should check it out. See how badly the hole's compromised. The idea is that because of this unique circumstance of Sukal's birth, he has a connection on a genetic level to subspace. And when he gets really freaked out and yells, it's like the resonant frequency of dilithium, sort of like an opera singer shattering a wine glass. Like yeah. uh, it, it, it travels at subspace speed and vibrates dilithium to the breaking point. And uh, and they're like, well, shit! Like he did, he got like a little bit freaked out the other day, and it caused bangers on nearby ships. So whatever he did that caused the burn, he was really upset. There's that question that uh, that Culber poses, which is like, if Sukal is 125 years old, uh, when does puberty hit, and <laughs> has he started jacking it? Because yeah. There are going to be dangers involved with uh, Sukal getting over, you know? And speaking of the dangers of puberty, Adam, like if if he has another yell, is he also going to grow spines and, and shoot them at everyone? <laughs> it's funny, like by the end, there is, a, there is an amount of guilt and shame about the burn that Sukal feels. But imagine if there were a masturbatory component to that also. <laughs> like, wow, Sukal, there's a lot of watered up Kleenex in this room. It's weird that there have been thousands and thousands of burns since that initial burn. <laughs> <laughs> This Nike shoebox is what Sukal calls his burn box. <laughs> he posted it on Reddit once and uh, really grossed the world out. <laughs> uh, back on the disco, uh, the bridge crew is is stagger asphyxiated. Yeah, they've built their bomb. It's like a. It looks like uh, something that Data would pack his his medals and a book in to resign his commission in Starfleet. Or, or like the cylinder that they move the spores around in engineering. This is like a oh, yeah. this is like a primary container for for how they do things on the ship. 
Totally. So nobody but OO is is up for uh, finishing the mission off. So uh, they they pass it to her. Meanwhile, Michael Burnham and Book are uh, are fighting through the hallways and trying to make it to the computer core. And they get kind of pinned down in a turbo lift. They uh, they they go out onto the outside of the hull of the turbo lift in that like interior space in the ship that the lifts travel through, which just to restate is preposterous. It looks so much bigger than the ship seems like it could possibly be. It's not even close to to credibly sized. I don't yeah. understand why they do it this way. It's like Borg cube scale feeling inside. It absolutely is. They should vignette this or something so that the depth isn't so great. Yeah. I feel like they just established it at some point in season two and, and we're stuck with it now. No one's asking for this to be practical, but but like you got to get closer to to make this effect make sense. Yeah. I mean, there were there were like things like this that strange credulity in TNG and Deep Space Nine and stuff, but this is like by far the silliest thing that the show asks us to buy on an ongoing basis, that the show is like generally like a huge open empty volume. Like it doesn't even make sense with what the exterior of the ship looks like. It's a bunch of disconnected rings that like don't have passage. Like if it was a sphere, I might buy it. Right. But it's not. Olatunde Osunsanmi is this episode's director, and uh, they've directed a lot of disco episodes. I really, like, there are a lot of fight scenes in this episode, and I, I found them all uh, really dynamic and interesting. But this was the first time I really noticed how, because the camera's moving around so much. Like, yeah. these are sequential fight scenes with beats and beats and beats, and the camera is moving along with them, that I'm, I wonder... And this question and answer is so much above our pay grade and our experience level as as video producers. But to what extent do you think that the sets are built from doing a previs project where you know you know how you're going to be lensed and you know how you're going to move a camera around? You know the aspect ratio of the show. Are you are you building to how you're lensed? to make things look great because there is a, a fight scene. I think it happens before book and Michael Burnham get into the turbo lift where the, uh, the hallway fits into the frame just perfectly. And when they wing around, so does the turbo lift. And that's not luck. Like you've got to previs that to make sure yeah. it works. Because if you show up on set with your lens kit and you want to make people look, look good and the ship look good, you can't have, your people in your spaces sized wrong. Yeah. Well, and to that point when Michael, like Michael Burnham, like basically abandons book by jumping onto another turbo lift and makes it to the computer core and the computer core room yeah. is amazing looking. And it is exactly what you're talking about. It is like a super wide space with a low ceiling. So it just looks fantastic on camera in this, in this wide format. A, a related comparison to this is how like a big reason Star Trek destroyed the Enterprise D was because it was not a ship made to play in a widescreen format. It was made to play in a television format. That's why the E is such a much longer ship. Like yeah. I think that's a related element. Like you want to fill the frame with 
your your objects and and you need to make them for that purpose well Osira has gone to personally defend the computer core for some reason <laughs> right but yeah uh, wasn't explained but i was perfectly happy to see uh -huh. her and michael burnham getting a big star trek fight in here a lot of fun a lot of cross-cutting here because yeah. they're having their star trek fight well oh whoa struggles uh into the nacelle with the bomb i uh really wish we'd spent a little bit more time understanding what has been done to discovery here because she's in the nacelle which means she's not on the in the main hull of the ship anymore yeah because they're detached but i do, like i don't feel like i understand how that happened i think we've learned that the nacelles attach themselves to the ship when it's in warp right so you don't have to bridge the expanse between the nacelles oh. and the ship when it's resting correct oh i see so they're attached at the moment i believe that to be true yeah okay but to your point, I would have liked to see what the computer core looked like before and after the refit. Yeah. Like, there's a lot going on in the computer core, too, that I don't understand. Like, that that wall of computer chips that Michael Burnham gets pushed into. Like, what is that? I think it's programmable matter, right? It's the same stuff that Detmer's console is made out of. It's the same stuff that, that helps a person fly Book's ship. That's, that's yeah. the new computer. Osiris pushes her into that thing and then it, and it seems pretty satisfied that that's it for Michael Burnham, but it isn't it. <laughs> and I was like, okay, like, I don't know what this object is. I don't know where she went. I don't know why Osiris thinks she's dead. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> I'm positive one of the crew people took a look at the programmable matter and was like, what would it feel like to be inside that? Yeah. What would it feel like to barf it? Well, Michael Burnham is about to find out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It it feels a little bit uh, abyss-like. She's in and then she shoots from inside it, which is cool. It's not like her arm with the with the firearm is sticking out of the programmable matter. The, the beam weapon shoots from inside the programmable yeah. matter and RSVP Osira. Meanwhile, like Zara has gotten killed by Book and... Uh, Owo has, has planted and blown her bomb. So uh, the ship is out of warp and Michael Burnham is free to uh, do the factory reset and delete all contacts on Starship Discovery. And uh, she she's like, just order of operations, reboot, reset life support. Authorization code Burnham, Gamma 602, Epsilon, Echo. Beam all of the... Uh all the bad guys into space was one of the orders. <laughs> I immediately yeah. thought of Aurelio. I was like, well, I uh, hope to see you next season as another character, Kenneth Mitchell. That was fun <laughs> while it lasted. <laughs> like the the very sad scene at the view screen of, uh, of him struggling. <laughs> <laughs> so awful. Yeah. A guy who was like totally on his way to a kind of redemptive epiphany and just cut short. What's interesting is like to replay all of the scenes where Aurelio and Michael Burnham shared the same space. We know Aurelio far better than she does. When she yeah. gives the computer the command to beam everyone away, it's up to the computer to somehow separate the wheat from the chaff <laughs> in that process. Really? Yeah. yeah and the computer that's... chooses right? 
that's the uh, that's the transporter murder equivalent of walking off the bridge going computer 20th century garb yeah <laughs> that is incredible Owo comes to uh, having come pretty close to hypoxia and uh, one of the dot 23s is kind of like giving up the ghost in front of her yet another place in this episode where I was like, what's going on here? How many of these dot 23s are sphere data dot 23s? Or is it all of them? Do they all have the same copy or is it like a distributed copy? Because this... you see so many of them die and you're like, no. They are dropping like flies <laughs> at the beginning of this episode. <laughs> yeah. Unclear. And also like why the sphere data is like so, so like selfless and heroic in this episode. It's like, it was an honor to work with you. <laughs> I wanted, like we get scenes earlier of the bridge crew shooting and the dot 23 is helping and also sacrificing themselves. Yeah. I had wished the dot 23s just tore through some of these people. Like, <laughs> like ripping them limb from limb style. Yeah. Throwing them against the ceiling like Saru. Yeah, yeah. Give me some of that. Owo turns and makes eye contact with Detmer. One of the best Dowos of the season, Adam. Yeah, feels good. Feels right. The bridge crew is back where they belong. And Tilly and Michael Burnham both look at the chair and and like picking up a check at the end of a meal. <laughs> kind of... Uh, Let me goodbye. No, 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 no. I'll pick up the chair. Okay. Finally, Tilly insists that Michael uh, take the chair and uh, immediately Michael shares their new objective. They're going to go back to the planet where Saru and Culber and co are and we got to rescue that crew. But to do it, we've got to escape the Viridian, which we are now inside. And if if you aren't sure where you are, it's because that scene where the disco is absorbed into the Viridian is like three seconds long it's so fast it, it like blink and you miss it or in my case look down to write a note about the previous scene and you miss it and then are like what is going on it's here? fun how they have a castle door sound to like the sound of the <laughs> of the mouth of the ship closing around the discovery as if there's like yeah. a chain and a gear system involved <laughs> they uh they experimented with a lot of them one of them was just num 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 i thought a lot about this scene and this plan because i'm like cool Hit it. Yeah. But, but everyone seems very preoccupied with dumping the warp core before spore jumping. Like they, they, they hypothesize that maybe Book can be the one to spore jump the ship because he's got the, uh, he's got the power in his mind. Yeah. He's got the lights in his forehead. He can communicate with different beings, including spores. And so maybe if he put his hands into the holy water, he could uh, get the ship going where it needs to go. They let a lot ride on that hope. <laughs> I'm like, great book, do it. And all of a sudden, Michael Burnham's like, dump the warp core and blow it up. Do they need to like blow the Viridian to get through the shields or something? Like, can they not jump it from within the ship? I know that's not clear. And the conclusion I drew from this scene was that they need to make it tidy. Like the Viridian needs to be taken off the board. And yeah. that's why they're going to do it. They could have just had a line though. Like, yeah. even if we can jump which I hope we can, we yeah. won't be able to because of the something field that the Viridian has has on us. Yeah. But all that being said, I, I did like Michael Burnham ordering Book to be beamed directly to the spork box. Yeah. <laughs> Book is like, uh, look, do I have time to like hit the bathroom first? Like we've kind of done a lot of things without a break. 
Yeah. Uh, he doesn't get a break. And uh, and he's beamed right there. And and we are taken back to the planet with Sukal. Yes. And, uh, and he's on the doorstep. He's got to be persuaded to go through the door into the scariest part of the simulation. <laughs> Saru's like, everyone's doing it, Sukal. Culber's like, you want to be cool, don't you? Jump. (laughs) (laughs) Sukal's like, well, you guys do seem pretty rad. Okay. And uh, he explains as they enter that this is a part of the environment that he has not been in since he was a kid. And he is uh, kind of girding himself to do this uh, when it hits Gray, what this is about to do to Gray. Mm-hmm. Once he turns off the hollow, I'll, I'll... I will still see you. It's not enough. Have you seen these shoulder pads? They're fucking fierce. <laughs> <laughs> and now no one's going to see them. Yeah. Culber and Adira kind of make a commitment to Gray. Like, we're going to find a way, like... It's kind of like now that we know this is possible, let's we're gonna like we're gonna find a way to reproduce it elsewhere. Gray's like, I'm so scared right now, and Culber's like, This is Star Trek, and then they yeah. go on with their business. Culber's like, In one uh, series of Star Trek, the doctor, like me, was a hologram, and he walked around and talked to people all the time. So like, we've got you. This is super doable. Yeah. So Sukal walks up to the computer. And uh, sort of like the one ring to rule them all, the uh, the hand control grows to fit his palm. It was kid sized, and now it's uh, now it's hand sized. And he he pushes the button. The hologram starts to kind of kind of fly away like uh, little particles of light. Mm-hmm. I wish we'd seen the actors like lose their loaf and stuff. God. I was I was so upset that we didn't see Saru kind of teen wolf his way back to being Kelpian. Right. Yeah. I wanted to see what happened to his feet. Yes, I know. I mean, the effects work on this episode and the entire season has been amazing. It feels shitty to ask for more effects work. But yeah. but that would have been a really nice bit of punctuation to the thing. Yeah. Hard to do because you have to like get the actors in the makeup chair for the six hours shoot it that way and then get them out of the makeup and shoot it that way clearly the last couple episodes was uh the idea of a dispute between doug jones and the show (laughs) (laughs) you know he's not putting on the makeup anymore yeah we don't see the teen wolf scene but what we do see is sukal witnessing the death of his mother and what's interesting about this order of operations is like little sukal wanders into the room sees his mom on death's doorstep and like sees a row of body bags there why wasn't he around for the death of the rest of his family where was he i don't know just in another room i mean it's like uh like put a body body bag on me if you're the last one out kind of a (laughs) kind of a thing for his mom when when a, a crew dies of radiation poisoning, you put the body bag on yourself first before helping someone else into their body bag. <laughs> and, and we relive the burn. We see him process this horror and uh, process the horror of the moment. I really liked the performance of Bill Irwin here because we see mostly the end of this scene 
in a wide shot where Sokal is facing away from the camera, like watching, uh, like more or less from the same point of view as us. But you really get the the feeling in his performance, like the way his body is shuddering, like the emotion is sold, even though we're looking at the character's back. One of my great regrets is not being able to perform the genocide to camera. And uh, I got to say, I, I too appreciated this performance. Yeah, you've heard about uh, somebody with a shy bladder. I have kind of a shy genocide. <laughs> I mean, what triggered my genocide was a fit of rage over the death of my wife, Rashan. But, uh... <laughs> You know, after watching a scene like this, it's clear you aren't really sure what can trigger a genocide. It's one of the reasons I use a nasal spray when the pollen gets bad at my Malibu beach house. A, a hard sneeze could, could be enough to do it. Look at this poor schmuck. He's not even a doubt and he did it by accident. <laughs> You're fucked up, Shukal. <laughs> You're fucked up bad. Having processed this, Sakal uh, turns to see that Saru has assumed his Kelpian form, and Sakal, in awe, reaches up to touch Saru's face, and Saru's like, Ew, gross fingers, get them off me, ew! <laughs> 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 Like they cut over to Culver and even Culver like pulls away. (laughs) Like I'm a medical professional, but uh, those fingers still gross me out. Gray, Gray leans over to Adira and is like, on second thought, don't make me a hologram. I don't want to risk those things touching me. I sure am glad that that the hollow program chose Vulcan instead of (laughs) Kelpian. <laughs> because I would have been over there uh, closing my hands into that secret door the entire time. <laughs> On the disco, time for the big gamble. I go to Black Alert, book is down in the spork box. The ship shits the warp core. It's, uh, it's about to explode beneath them. There's a, a bit of a moment of hesitation. Weren't you expecting a smooth release of the warp core? Oh, the way it scrapes the tunnel on the way down drove me nuts. Like, shouldn't shouldn't the manufacturing have like completely controlled for any possibility that the warp core scrapes on the way out? You know a ship is healthy when they eject the warp core and it's a nice smooth release <laughs> and the and the core floats to the top. Of the bowl, yeah. uh, but no, this is uh, this is ugly. This is like dropping a stone down a well, and it's like hitting yeah. the sides all the way down. <laughs> we cut to the wide shot on the Viridian. Yeah, I love this technique. I love how they use sound, especially in these moments. Really cool, yeah. dope. It really feels momentous and good. Uh, and now we are left to wonder: Did the disco make it? Words are not enough to thank you for finding and rescuing my child. We get a little message from Sukal's mom, who kind of recorded a uh, a little something for the search and rescue that she assumed would be along shortly. The longer she talks, Sukal's like, Mom, 
You're embarrassing me. <laughs> These are my new friends. No, don't talk about like me like I'm not here. Pretty heavy to lay the burden on Sakal here. Sakal like totally gets it at this point that he's yeah. the cause of the thing. And Sakal's like, you know, maybe the goal of my life is to make things right. And Saru's like, uh, let's not think about that right now. It's actually an impossible <laughs> amount of of damage to try to fix for you. So let's just uh, get you out of here before you sneeze again. Yeah. The deal is that once Shukal is away from the dilithium as big as the Ritz, it's not a risk, right? Because he, he won't, it won't like resonate it big enough to... Yeah. This is a great moment because Culber is given this line. Like he definitively says that everything's going to be okay once they leave. Doesn't make this moment any any better because like shit is falling apart. It's not, and no one is concerned about the radiation and never has been after leaving the hollow. It's all about falling off the cliff if they stay during the bangers. Yeah, the uh, <laughs> the the ship imploding is just yet another thing that they have to uh, to stress about. If Sukal falls off a cliff, does that trigger another burn once he lands? he's falling off a cliff and Culber is like phasering him like (laughs) over and over again as they plummet through the air (laughs) (laughs) Saru actually like considers shooting him before they fall off the cliff (laughs) sorry to have to do this after all we've just been through but I don't think the disco is showing up and uh, right on time it does the, team, the away team gets beamed up. The the Kiev uh, breaks apart and explodes on the planet's surface. And we head back to Federation HQ where the ships of the fleet have lined up. It's kind of like a an honorary configuration to uh, to hail the, the disco as it returns. I didn't know how much I wanted this until I saw it. Like it was dope. Starship parade as a concept. Yeah. Is I could not believe like that's one of the most original things that this show has ever done was introduce that concept. Amazing. It's great. Um this is all kind of covered in a Michael Burnham VO. Why isn't this a log entry? And why don't we get any log entries on the show anymore? Yeah. I feel like this needs to explicitly be one. I would have liked that, yeah. I think that 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 would have felt good, especially given what's coming up. Like maybe kind of think of it as her final entry as as just the science officer. Especially because it's a technology Star Trek does to to get away with a voiceover. And now we aren't even like, we aren't even trying to get away with it. We're just doing it. Yeah. One thing that, uh, is fully cemented in this sequence is that Stamets fully hates Michael Burnham. <laughs> I'm ready for angry Stamets. Culber, Adira, and Stamets are like embracing each other, happy to be reunited as a family. And Michael Burnham is like watching with pleasure in her eyes and she just gets the hairiest of eyeballs from Stamets. <laughs> Low key, this sequence I think is... I think really difficult for both actors. Anthony yeah. Rapp to act emotionally relieved and happy and all of those things and then to see Michael Burnham and to react the way he does, I think is really 
subtly some of the best work that we've seen him do on the show. And to her credit, Michael Burnham to to do to mirror that, to be happy and relieved and be hurt by the reaction. Yeah, man, that like this is acting isn't just delivering lines and like knowing where your body is in space. Like it's it's pulling this off in a couple of seconds. And I really thought it was powerful to watch. They're really good at this. Showing unsurprised hurt that a person that, you know, feels betrayed by you is going to hold on to that feeling. It's like such a that that is so complicated. Yeah. Saru is taking a little break. Trill is back in the Federation. Looks like Navarre may be considering it. Uh, things are things are very much headed in uh, the direction that they had hoped at the yeah. at the beginning of all this. And uh, we get a little shot of Saru and Sukal on Kel- uh, Kaminar, where there are like cities and yeah, ra- rocket cars and shit. Why is there a Golden Gate Bridge there? It's weird. <laughs> He, uh, he slaps uh, Sukal on the back and is like, you're not going to believe the Kelpian, uh, the Kelpian haggis that you get in the <laughs> homeland, dude. It yeah. Fucking, it will tear your shit up, though. Like, <laughs> it is, you're going to want to go, uh, you're going to want to wander out into the water a little bit and yeah. uh, maybe d- just do it out there. You're going to want to burn uh, your clothes if you do it at home. The clean separation that one would hope from a warp core ejection is not going to be available to you for some time. <laughs> <laughs> they uh, they measure it in moons here. <laughs> uh, so do you think that Saru is kind of off the show? I think it suggests the possibility of maybe Saru not being a uh, a main character anymore yeah but um but we know that doug jones is in toronto shooting season four as we speak so remains to be seen admiral saru wow he really failed up if that's the case (laughs) (laughs) michael burnham uh heads into uh admiral stock photo on a wealth management company website's office and uh this is just as uh, Lieutenant Sayel is leaving the uh, the long-suffering guy that was working on a distant outpost of the Federation at the beginning of the season. Official uniform and everything for Lieutenant Sayel now. He's on his way to uh, to talk therapy to uh, <laughs> to try to get a grasp on his new reality, which has got to be a fucking trip right <laughs> like he should be scared of people in this scene i think yeah but uh yeah the uh the, the admiral wants michael burnham to take over captaining duties for the disco admiral stern stepdad you didn't understand growing up but now that you're an adult you sort of understand why he was the way he was asks the <laughs> question do you want to be captain philippa Look at yeah. me. Look at me. You're the captain now. Yeah. She's a little resistant to this at first, but uh, she she looks him in the eye and she says, Admiral before guy in a Grecian formula television commercial, <laughs> I accept. I think it's the uniform that puts her over the edge, right? Like, yeah. maybe she will, maybe she won't, but the new duds. The new duds are dope. It's It's reveal time. She's uh, she's taken off her glasses. Yeah. She's a beautiful captain. 
She sure is. We never we never saw it in her before. Do you think when Captain Burnham sits in the chair, she should have touched the nubbin? I wanted her to touch it. I wanted it to also. I want. I wanted that to close the loop between her and Philippa Georgiou, and and the journey that she's taken up until this point. A total bean touching blue balls. Oh yeah, yeah. We get her uh, her catchphrase. Her going to warp catchphrase. I think it's great. Yeah, I'm a fan. Let's fly. Did you notice that they went to a like a slow-mo on her face after she said it that and they didn't shoot it at a high frame rate yeah yeah they did that a couple times in this episode and i thought that was interesting that i feel like only you and i would notice that right because whenever you shoot for slow motion you need to shoot at a higher frame rate so that it's smooth and if you try to go slow-mo uh at a typical frames per second speed you get the juddering you get in yeah. In scenes like this. I thought it was strange too. I I wondered if that goes to my theory of of they didn't have any way to do reshoots and there there were things that they wished they could have done but didn't have right. an opportunity to this season. Interesting that they give the gavel to the thing to Gene Roddenberry. They post uh, a quote of his on the screen about making connections with people as long as those people are men and they're in charge and the women are wearing super short skirts. Yeah. Kind of a strange sentiment to end the season on, but... Yeah. (laughs) Did you like the episode, Adam? (laughs) What's so weird is like the thing that I like about it is the the possibilities that are to come, right? Like I like that we're staying in the future and we get a chance to see more of what we missed this season. Mm -hmm. That was kind of a relief. Yeah. Uh, The thing that I... The things that I liked in this episode specifically, like I like Doug Jones acting as Saru. And I think last season's climactic finale, you're just not going to beat that in terms of stakes or anything. Like I was not nearly as nervous this episode as I was for the last. And I think maybe the reason I was so nervous in last season's finale is because Michael Burnham wasn't on the ship. And because she's ever present during all the problems of this season, I always felt like we were in safe, good hands with her. Um, A couple of things I wanted to bring up during this section are, uh, who is Lieutenant Ina? And (laughs) (laughs) why wasn't, uh, what's her face there? Yeah, uh, Nilsson, very rarely a concern in this episode. uh, (laughs) She got got shuttled off the ship when they were uh, getting rid of the non-critical crew? I don't know. And also like the anonymization of Osiris army, I think speaks to a quality we talk about sometimes when we describe superhero movies. Like, I wonder if we feel those scenes a little more if we're seeing faces and not stormtrooper helmets. Like if we're feeling them in a different way. Yeah, because it's like stormtrooper helmets or really extensive loaf and both things kind of serve to anonymize. Mm Mm-hmm. But if, I, I I agree. Like if if more of those characters had been characterized, it might have felt different. And there were really interesting things toward the end of this season about how Osira had pretenses toward like politi- political legitimacy. Yeah, and people that have pretenses toward political legitimacy have uh, almost always have people that are willing to violently defend that alleged legitimacy. Hmm around them so it would be 
uh, I think, good to to give us a sense of who those people are and what they're about. I think finally, a thought that crystallized only after talking to you about this episode is that I think to paraphrase you from another episode of Greatest Discovery, like when story moves as fast as it does, as fast as it did this season, and we're constantly made to wish we were seeing things that that we're just skipping over for expediency, stuff like, what was the computer core before? And why don't we know any of the bridge characters more than for a single line of dialogue every couple of episodes? I feel like you and now I am advocating for just a little bit of boring Star Trek that allows for time to see how things are done, to see our characters do the work and develop relationships with each other and with us that make us care about them. Because as much fear as I had for, for the idea of Owo's death at the end, we don't know her at all. When they killed Arium, they had to give her an entire episode to make us feel right. anything. Uh, Owo doesn't get that benefit. We we get we we got a handful of lines of dialogue. Yeah, we know that she was like from like a weird religious mm-hmm. group, or like not a, not religious, but like anti technology group. We know that she dove for Abalone and can hold her breath from this episode. That's like the only extra character detail they gave us. If the entire bridge crew dies here, it's it's we know we know more about pilot Detmer than ever. We know about can hold her breath forever. Oh well, we know a little bit about Nilsson. We know almost as much about Ina as we know about Nilsson, and Bryce and Rees <laughs> are basically not characters. Basically potted plants. Yeah, yeah. So I hope we continue on the trajectory of an additional episode every season. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe season four will have 14 episodes. That would be cool. Anyway, that's that's very long-winded, Ben. I took up a lot of time. Did you like the episode? Your feelings are very similar to mine. I, I, this is an episode that I had a million questions. And like I think that there's something different from... There, there have been episodes this season where I had questions and I was like, ah, I don't think that they thought this through and it and it's bad because of that. And all of the questions I had, I felt like they had thought through and had they felt like they had rational rationalized uh, the things that they showed us. And while I had a very pinhole view of the internal logic of this episode, it felt consistent f- from what I could see. And so it didn't, it wasn't bumping me out left and right. It was just raising questions in my mind, but we're moving so fast that you can't stop and and ponder them. And to the episode's credit, I, it was moving fast in a way that I found fun. Yeah. Like I, I thought it was fun and interesting. I liked the idea of a character having to face their own fear in order to free themselves, like a theme I'm like super into and uh, you know, especially in a time where things are very scary, like mm-hmm. something I valued having time to reminisce about. Um, but uh, yeah, like I don't think it's a perfect episode, but I thought it was a very uh, a very strong end to a bumpy season. That's fair. Well, let's add a few more bumps to this episode of Greatest Discovery, and uh, 
do a couple rails of P1s. I think. <laughs> Uh, my nose and rolled up dollar are ready. <laughs> Priority one message from Starfleet coming in on secured channel. Ben, our first priority one message is from Andy K. It's to Rob's, 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 Rob's. Andy K. If you just want to talk to Rob, we can give you his uh his cell phone number. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, Rob's cell phone number is. <laughs> Nine two five five one four six one. Andy's message for Rob's goes like this: Hey Ben and Adam, I wanted to throw you a few scarves for Christmas, but I also have a question for Rob's. Do you put in cues for him that he edits out later, like saying, "Rob's, can you put Burnham Scream in here?" Or does he have full creative control over the drops and sound effects? Thanks for the laughs and happy holidays. This is a fun nice. production question, Andy. Yeah. Uh, I would say that Rob's does have full creative control and most episodes basically does all of it and we may ask him to, you know, add something if we think of it in in post. But generally speaking, uh, the, the drops you hear on this show are thought yeah. of and, and put in by Rob's. And uh, every, time I, every time I QA one, uh, he's making me laugh. It, it, like, I really love the work that he does. So the process goes, we record the episode, Rob edits the episode, we QA it, and the version we QA is what he's created using our audio and the drops and sound effects. Occasionally we'll be like, during the QA process, we'll be like, hey, can you add something here or take out something there? But ordinarily, very little changes between the QA version and what ends up uh, going out to the viewers. He does a great job. Yeah, it'll be like, hey, Rob, I farted for 30 seconds sustained in the middle of making that point. And could you like put a filter on it so that people don't hear what a nasty butt I have? Yeah. Thanks for your question, Andy. Yeah. And thanks for getting a P1. Uh, Our next P1 is from your mother and father. And it's to Sarah Ann. And it goes like this. Happy one month birthday. The podcast aside, your parents finding each other was truly the greatest discovery, especially now that you, the next generation, have arrived and given us something positive to remember from 2020. We hope you like Star Trek. Otherwise, this is $100 down the drain. In all sincerity, live long and prosper. You know, so often uh, children reject the... uh, the projections of their parents like uh-huh. of them i want i want my kid to be uh, an olympian i want them to be uh, a famous violinist like all of these right. things and they, they'll just go in the opposite direction entirely uh it's clear that uh this darling daughter is going to love star wars instead yeah. sad yeah it's really sad when that happens uh <laughs> But in all sincerity, uh, Sarah Ann's mother and father, thank you also for getting a P1. Uh, If you'd like to get a P1 out there, uh, do MaximumFun.org slash Jumbotron and uh, set it up. It's fun to see Priority Ones fill up for uh, the off-season. There's a lot of fun stuff ahead. Indeed. What do you think of when you think of male grooming? Maybe it's a sharp haircut and a little bit of product. Or a bit of the old beard wax twisted into the ends of a mustache. Maybe it's a shower, a shave, a little spritz of fragrance. 
Me? I think of shaving my nuts. And not just my nuts, all around those nuts. I'm talking all around those nuts. And this form of male grooming is hard to do when your junk looks like a log of Play-Doh rolled through a dustpan in a barber shop. It's wrinkly, it's wriggly, nothing stays in place, and it's the one area where you don't want to have an accident. That's why I'm glad we're sponsored by the spring cleaning champions at Manscaped. They sent me their brand new Lawnmower 5.0 Ultra. It's their fifth generation trimmer, featuring two interchangeable next-gen skin-safe blade heads, a standard one for taking a little bit off the top, and a new foil blade to go smooth, wherever your heart desires. They also sent me an extra-large Manscaped t-shirt, which I will never wear, but it was nice of them to do. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code TREK at manscaped.com. That's 20% off and free shipping with the code TREK at manscaped.com. Nothing like a little spring cleaning in your pants. I spent a lot of last week sick in bed. And one thing I was so happy I had when I needed something to eat but didn't really have the energy to cook myself something was Factor Meals. Got a couple of these in the fridge at all times, and they are delicious, fresh, never frozen, chef-crafted meals. And they're ready to go in just about two minutes. And this is convenience food that is actually tasty and full of real ingredients and not hyper-processed crap. And they got you covered all throughout the day. They got pancakes, smoothies, grab-and-go bites, and uh, you can get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause and reschedule deliveries at any time. So head to factormeals.com slash trek50 and use code trek50 to get 50% off. That's code trek50 at factormeals.com slash trek50 to get 50% off. Back for another game. You know it. What's going on? Just one more week till Max Fun Drive. <laughs> Hard to believe. It's been a heck of a year since the last one. We're now a worker-owned co-op. We raised $50,000 for charity last year. And we've added a bunch of awesome new shows. But do you think we're ready to do it again? Absolutely. Lovely new gifts are lined up. The episodes will be amazing. And wait till everyone hears the bonus content. Yeah, plus they know to go to MaximumFun.org newsletter, so they're getting all the news. Oh, like that meetup day is on Thursday, March 21st. Then what's bothering you? Me? Oh, nothing. We're all set for Max Fun Drive to start on Monday, March 18th. I just didn't want you to see this coming. Check. What? Hang on! Most of the plants humans eat are technically grass. Most of the asphalt we drive on is almost a liquid. The formula of WD-40 is San Diego's greatest secret. Zippers were invented by a Swedish immigrant love story. On the podcast Secretly Incredibly Fascinating, we explore this type of amazing stuff. Stuff about ordinary topics like cabbage and batteries and socks. Topics you'd never expect to be the title of the podcast. Secretly Incredibly Fascinating. Find us by searching for the word secretly in your podcast app. And at MaximumFun.org. Hey, Ben. What's that, Adam? Did you discover yourself in Edward Larkin? Tough question. Uh, I think I want to give it to Saru, not because he's like a goof or silly in this episode per se, but it kind of feels like it's his last 
episode as the as a member of the main cast unless I'm really misunderstanding something about what happened here and it makes me sad that we didn't get a scene of him expressing why he's going away like right. I understand why he's going away but I kind of thought it was uh, it was too bad that that had to come from Michael Burnham's voiceover and not from a scene between him and Michael Burnham or or whatever honestly I wouldn't want to stick around for Star Trek container ship either like <laughs> It's it's a totally understandable choice if you're Saru and you have the chance to, you know, like help a help a guy out in this moment. Yeah. I feel like the music swells and the mission ahead is is presented to us and like Star Trek is telling us what's coming is going to be great, but the nuts and bolts of it are like we're running dilithium around the galaxy. Like Yeah, we're we're just jumping around with cargo. It's it's Star Trek milk run. Yeah. Which was a what a, a kind of episode that TNG did all the time. So yeah. I yeah. don't see it as being like cutting off the idea of fun Star Trek stuff, but it's definitely not the like breathless cliffhanger that they left us with at right. the end of season two. My Edward Larkin is going to go to book uh, for one specific moment. When Zara says some shit about Book's cat and that like <laughs> Booker does that thing that uh that that some wrestlers do in the ring. You're gonna lose to Macho Man Randy Savage when you make fun of Miss Elizabeth and in every the same, single time. And in the same way, you make fun of Book's cat, he's gonna get up on the top rope and he's gonna <laughs> throw you out of the turbo lift. And here's the thing. This yeah. shouldn't work. It is cheesy as hell. Yeah. It works. It worked it for totally me. It totally worked. <laughs> his, his, something about the way he delivers the line and the way he is in frame yeah. doesn't make it as cheesy as it could be. I think he really saves the moment by performance. And I think it's... Yeah. When he I think says, it's some, she's a queen, oh yeah. <laughs> he puts on the giant sunglasses and the feather boa and... Uh, Dig it. <laughs> <laughs> and continues on. Yeah, I, there are a lot of moments this season where I think our actors have redeemed the dialogue and that is uh, emblematic of that <laughs> challenge throughout the season. And I think in this episode especially, it worked for me and, and delighted me. So he's my Edward Larkin. Good Larkin, Adam. <laughs> so that wraps up the season finale of the third season of Star Trek Discovery and it it gives us an opportunity at this point yeah <laughs> to actually do what we want to do with our show now Houston we have a problatunity as, uh, right. as Casper Hauser would say yeah so we're going to take one week off but we're going to be back and we've got a season long rewatch of Discovery we need to do. Yeah, so we're not taking it off at all. We're working. We're going to be working. You guys you guys will be taking it off. You won't have to trudge your way in and sit here for an hour of this dumb podcast next week, but we will. Uh, and then we also have to do the Discovery Season 3 award show. We got to do the Lower Decks rewatch. We got to do the Lower Decks award show. We got a lot on our plate. We got to do the reports and accounting for all this new Star Trek. It isn't an official greatest discovery season unless we do. So yeah. we can't leave it unreconciled. It's got to be reconciled, Adam. 
right. If we've got our comedy abacuses here, <laughs> and uh, and it's just like uh, like wind up teeth on a string. <laughs> We're just clacking them back and forth. Yeah. Uh, so uh, come back in in uh, in one fortnight for more greatest discovery, and uh, there's lots more Trek coming. So. Thanks for tuning in for this season of The Greatest Discovery, but don't go nowhere. We got a lot more fun stuff coming at you. Thanks for a great season, everyone. And thank you, Robs. You're welcome. Thanks. And thanks for that P1. The Greatest Discovery is a maximum fun podcast. It's hosted by Adam Pranica and Ben Harrison and produced by me, Rob Schulte. Our theme music is by Adam Ragusia. Check out his YouTube page to find your next recipe. I personally just made one of his pizzas, and it was delicious. Stay tuned, because we've got a lot more Greatest Discovery headed your way. It's going to be a whole lot of fun, and you're not going to want to miss it. This season has been wonderful, and I really appreciate all of the viewers out there who have taken the time to Spore Jump Season 3 with us. If you want to stay in tune with what's going on with all things Greatest Trek, follow that account on Twitter and Instagram. It's run by the great Bill Tilly, and we are thankful for him every day. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week with a very special episode. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.